This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons with Helen Farmer on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer on today's episode, catching up with Dr. Thraya, clinical psychologist, as she reveals findings of a recent survey. Exactly what makes us happy? It might not be the shoes or the handbag or even the house or the relationship. You might be surprised. Plus, conservationist, environmentalist and marine expert Amanda Rushforth on hand to talk about the importance of the ocean when it comes to fighting climate change. We took a trip to the Expo City Farm, met the students and teacher who are on a mission to understand money matters. What do they think we all need to know? Plus, in conversation with disability advocate Jessica Smith about her mission to reach a million children. The key to success and happiness, it is not what you think. Status, money, a new Ipsos poll has found out what really makes us tick all the way through our life. And joining us now, Dr. Thuraya, clinical psychologist at the Human Relations Institute and Clinic, joins us to unpack the survey and the science. How are you today, Dr. T? I'm well, Helen. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. And I have to say, it's really lovely and life-affirming to have messages from everyone listening today about what makes them happy. So I'm going to read you a few of those and then we're going to start drilling down into the science. Gary's saying happiness. For me, it's about being able to spend alone time with my wife. Dubai is busy and the kids' one-on-one time has become limited and I miss her. Um, Manny's saying making something useful, being creative with my hands, also whizzing down a mountain on a clear bluebird sky day and mastering a new skill. For Claudia, walking in the sunshine, the first bite of a really good sponge cake, lying in the sun and exploring new places. Let me know yours. I would honestly love to hear them. Thraya, how on earth do we even define what happiness is before we start to look for it? Psychologically speaking, is there a definition? Well, I guess it depends on who you're asking. Mm. So if you ask Carl Rogers, he says that, you know, happiness is, is tied to a congruence between your real self and your ideal self. Um, oh, hang on, hang on. Slow, oh, slow, yeah. <laughs> slow down. Say, say, that, say that again. So Carl Rogers talks about, you know, this congruence, which is this, this idea that it, there's a match between your real self and your ideal self. Mm-hmm. So the self that you want to be, that you think you need to be, and the, the self that you think that you are. Interesting. So does that mean that unhappiness is kind of unfulfilled potential and dreams potential? Oh, int- that's a really interesting take. Okay, who else are the great thinkers on this? So Albert Bandura talks about happiness and satisfaction that's very much tied to your self-efficacy. So your ability to pursue these goals and overcome certain types of obstacles in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have, of course, Martin Seligman that talks, he's a pioneer for um, positive psychology for anybody who's heard of it. Um, and he talks about happiness is cultivated and enhanced through these intentional practices and mindset, uh, mindset shifts. And so basically like practicing gratitude. I like that. I like Mo Gaudat on the topic of happiness. He was actually in the studio speaking to Sonal a few weeks ago. And if you haven't, if you're not familiar with Mo Gaudat, he actually lives in Dubai part time, which is really exciting. He's an amazing, he's just an amazing man. Um, he's very interested in AI. He worked for Google X for some time, and he had a really um, heartbreaking experience. He lost his son. Um, his son was in his early twenties, mm-hmm. and he talks about, I guess, I think. The the book after I'm gonna have a quick quick Google now. Um, I think it is the Happiness Solution. Um, but what his solve for happy apologies solve for happy and he talks a lot about expectation, which kind of come back to, to to that to that first idea of you know we have these thoughts about who we are and who we want to be. We have thoughts about what we want our day to look like or our potential partner or the job that we want. And when things fall short, you know, unhappiness lies in that gap. And his thinking on this is, and I don't say this lightly, has really, really changed my perspective on life. Because I'm, you know, I'm a bit of an idealist. I'm a bit of a romantic. And it's not about lowering your standards. It's about being more realistic. And more importantly than that, being really grateful and appreciative for what you do have. Um, So solve for happy. um, 
It's engineer your path to joy because he is indeed an engineer. Um, can we talk about the role of expectations then mm-hmm. um, when it comes to seeking happiness or boosting our happiness, Dr. T? Well, when we talk about expectations, you also have to talk about expectations, comparisons, and personal growth, right? Because they all kind of come together. And happiness and usually satisfaction with our lives are enhanced by them. But unfortunately, with expectations, a lot of us have unrealistic or overly high expectations that usually lead to a sense of disappointment and dissatisfaction. So balancing expectations with realism as well as flexibility is extremely important because Mm -hmm. any type of unmet expectations usually leads to a lot of regret, a lot of difficulties as we get older and looking back and feeling like we didn't do enough in our life. Oh, it's hard, isn't it? Because there's mm. been a few videos going around recently about the regrets of the dying. Mm-hmm. And exactly. It's not, exactly. It's not, I wish I'd spent more time at work. It often is, I wish I lived a life truer to my values. I wish I was my true self. I wish, mm-hmm. I, wish I was authentic. I wish I'd ex- express myself more clearly. Um, we're going to talk about what the science says next. Um, there is a new study, as I mentioned, that really kind of pinpoints what can make us happier and our sense of success as well. Julie saying Soul for Happy, such a courageous book. Um, a great one if you are looking to uh, to boost your happiness or indeed shift your perspective on happiness because you might be happier than you realise. That's by Mo Gaudat. It is 16 minutes past four. Dr. Thurai, clinical psychologist, is on the line. We're going to be talking about that survey next. It's not necessarily about owning a house or having the handbag. What truly makes us happy as humans? Revealing that next. What makes you happy? On the text line from Jazz Chili Doritos. Uh, Offie saying, going for a walk and a coffee with my adult children, just chatting with them and being grateful they want to spend time with me. We've had messages about dogs. Uh, Young saying, I've just had a lovely walk along the canal. Sun was out. I felt happy. I was enjoying life. Dr. Tharaya, clinical psychologist, is with us today from the Human Relations Institute and Clinic as we unpack a new survey that aims to find out what makes us tick. Tharaya, tell us a little bit about, I guess, what people think might or should make us happy and then the findings of the survey, if you don't mind. Well, essentially, a lot of people usually will go to the materialistic stuff. So they'll go to things like, as you mentioned before, things like money, cars, houses, uh, handbags, as as you mentioned. It's Dubai, baby. (laughs) Who doesn't love a nice Valentino shoe and a nice Hermes handbag? (laughs) Right. And so usually we think, and even sometimes we think it's spending time with family, um, which which is a, a closer, you know, you're kind of getting warmer to the answer there. But the in-depth poll by Opsis actually found that the key to success and happiness is the desire for control over our lives. And this is a very interesting finding. And I, I think finally that somebody actually said it out loud because what we, sh- you know, shudder against is this idea of like, oh, no, we don't want to be in control. I'm not a controlling person. Well, it's not so much that, but having this sense of security, agency, autonomy over our own life is what really the feeling of control is or being in control, which is why human beings tend to desire control in their lives is to have those feelings. I think it's it's particularly relevant when we think about the last few years when there was so much uncertainty during the pandemic and people feeling out of control, you know, worried Mm -hmm. about jobs, you know, people feeling insecure, you know, and I don't mean, you know, in terms of self-esteem insecure, I mean insecure in, in their lives. And... I'm not a control freak. I'm definitely a control fan, um, I would say. And I think most people listening would say, do you know what? That might be me. To feel like I have got control of aspects of my life, whether it is I'm in a job that I enjoy and I'm working towards a job that I want, or I'm in a relationship that I feel content in and it feels active and positive and fulfilling. Or if I wanted to, I could move tomorrow. You know, I could, I've got this, you would use that word agency. And I think that's a, a really nice way of, of putting it perhaps more than rather than control. Um, because we don't like to think about someone, you know, being someone else being the puppet master of our, of our lives and our, mm-hmm. and our destinies. You know, we want to feel like we're 
in the driving seat. But I guess what it can then lead to is this idea of unhappiness. Is that when we're out of control or is it is that when we're feeling stuck, do you think, Thiraya? Well, actually, there's an interesting theoretical uh, concept that I that I teach actually in sports psychology in one of the classes that I teach at the university. And in sports psychology, they use this thing called threats and challenges. And in reality, everything in life that we go through has an element of something that we can control and some and an element of something that we can't control, right? Mm-hmm. And it's essential to realize that complete control over every aspect of our life is not always feasible. So to achieve that sense of happiness, it's crucial to find that balance between the desire of, of control and the acceptance of uncertainty. And so when this sports psychology concept actually talks about threats and challenges, it's not so much where the control lies, but where your focus lies. Mm. So I'll give you an example. So if you let's say you're driving down Chelsea Road and, and you know, what essentially are you in control of, Helen? Um. You can control your, you can't even control your speed because you're dictated to, you can control your mood. And it's funny you mentioned that because I had a chat with, we just mentioned it before, Mo Godat, about what you, exactly that, what you can control. The minute mm-hmm. the traffic is hectic, you cannot right. control the flow of traffic. What you can right. control is your attitude towards it, which is, I could be here half an hour, I can moan and gripe and complain and get annoyed at this guy on his phone next to me or this chick who's like driving at my bum Or I can say, do you know what? I've got the radio on. I've got a podcast on. Maybe I'm on the phone to someone that, you know, I haven't caught up with in a while and actually use that time and have a bit of a a flip of my attitude. Yeah, and and the reality is, is that you can control, let's say, how fast you're driving, your hands on the steering wheel. You can control, like, making sure that you're paying attention to the road and so on and so forth. But you can't control, you know, God forbid, if, like, your tire explodes or if somebody cuts you off or there's somebody speeding in front of you or behind you or the traffic, as you said. So there are going to be elements where you can control and there are the elements that you can't control. And that mood that you mentioned, which is actually also written by Viktor Frankl, where he talks about that's the one freedom that nobody can kind of take away from us is that is how we decide to respond to something. Mm-hmm. And so w- where we focus, um, and this is actually used a lot with athletes in the sense of if they are looking at things from a threatening perspective, which is essentially all the things that we can't control, then they feel a sense of anxiety and a sense of discomfort. But when people hyperfixate on the things that they can control, then they start to look at life in terms of challenge, in terms of resiliency, in terms of, you know, a sense of autonomy and a sense of agency. And so how and that is very much closely related to this idea of mood. So where we fixate our thought patterns and where we fixate our our focus is actually extremely important when it comes to how it affects our mood and thus how it affects our happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, a message here from Mona saying, playing in my orchestra, it's amazing. Um, and P says, my kid's napping on me. Really good cheese on toast. And that feeling of warm when you lie on the grass in the sun. I love this. So it's just lovely. I think it's a great things actually for us all to take a little bit of a note of, you know, pop it in your, pop it in your phone notes when you're feeling, feeling a bit low. The survey showed that having a sense of control or agency over your life is is the key you know big big picture stuff i think the little stuff is really important and, and really important to acknowledge it but feeling like you are going in the direction that you want to and i wondered then if conversely that feeling stuck is this idea of unhappiness thrive and i think an awful lot of people do feel stuck you know might have gone down a career path that they hadn't really intended to and 20 years later they're still doing it and still not enjoying it or you know being in a relationship that worked and doesn't now um how do you feel like with these big things in life you can start to take back some control and is it ever too late i i don't think there's ever a moment where it's ever too late however I do think you kind of have to look at what you can have control over. And, you know, in general, we don't need to make big life changes in order to feel a sense of agency and a sense of autonomy. So, for instance, for a person who's not enjoying the job that they have, but they've been in it for 20 years, you don't necessarily have to leave your job and change careers, but you can do something on the side that allows you to kind of feel that sense of pleasure and that purpose and meaning in life. So, Sometimes it's about managing the expectations that we have, and that can be very beneficial in terms of creating the sense of um, 
uh, encouragement and the sense of empowerment mm-hmm. within us. I listened to, I don't know if you're familiar with Mel Robbins, but I was listening to mm-hmm. her recently. Um, and she, 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 like me, is kind of passionate about the idea of always having something ahead of you to look forward to. Because it is quite boring to think of someone, you know, making their millions or finding the love of their life at 19. I, I'm about like, do you know what? Let's make new friends in 50s. Let's start a career in your 60s. Let's learn an instrument in your 70s. And mm. she was talking about how she thinks about life as being like a road trip. So imagine that, you know, every year is a mile or a kilometre, depending, you know, on, on your passport. And... Mm sometimes you can veer off the path that you wanted to. And it's about taking a moment, listening to, I guess, that internal sat-nav and thinking, this doesn't feel right. But what can, exactly as you said, what can I adjust? What can I add? What can I take away to maybe get back to who I am or who I want to be? Mm-hmm. And I know <laughs> it's very idealistic to say, you're going to quit your job and you know there's a small matter of you know a salary and right. a visa especially places like this but um it can be about adding things to your life and kind of not giving up i guess mm-hmm. however sometimes it must feel overwhelming for an awful lot of people and i'm not talking about when you've got you know serious medical or mental health problems where getting out of bed in the morning is a problem but sometimes it can just be feel overwhelming to even try and understand what your goals might be. You know, what are some of the, the questions or how can you connect to yourself to, to start to realize what might make you happy? Well, I think you first you have to start off with accepting your imperfections, right? So embrace that perfection is un, unattainable and, uh, and that uncertainties are really a part of life. And actually learning to set clear goals, this is one of the things that a lot of people struggle with. They tend to set really big goals and move away from what is necessary, which is the really small baby steps that are so achievable that, you know, some people will be like, well, this is really stupid. Anybody can do this. And I'm yes, but do it anyway, because that gives you a sense of empowerment and it gives you a sense of encouragement. But and because when we focus on what can be controlled and we redirect our energy on the aspects in our life that can be managed, we start to develop new problem solving skills. We decide, we cultivate like proper decision making skills. We actually create a massive structure and routine in our life that allows us to adopt this growth mindset mm-hmm. and it helps us practice self-care as well as, you know, developing this mindfulness. But also it's it's about reaching out to people, I think, because a lot of us want to do this stuff on our own and, and say, you know, now that I'm an adult, I should be able to do this on my own. And I say, what for? <laughs> like we are we are social creatures. We're supposed to ask for help. We're supposed to get people. It doesn't make us weak. It doesn't mean we're not good enough. It just means that, you know, we are doing what, you know, we have been intended to put on this earth to do, which mm-hmm. is do things socially and, yeah. and, and ask people to help us become more accountable and, and help us manage certain strategies. I love that. Um, the other thing that for, that I got from this Mel Robbins uh, talk recently was about, <laughs> it's about jealousy and how jealousy can be, yeah. can be really useful. Um, and she was talking about, you know, how can you start to recognize what you might want to work towards? And that's not necessarily about professionally you know she was saying you know there might be someone in your life that you are a little bit jealous of and it might not be that they've got this amazing house in Arabian ranches and they're doing this renovation and they're going to make millions although that would be nice Uh, um you know it might be that maybe they seem to have a family who you know adult children who really enjoy spending time with them which we heard earlier for example or they feel seem to have just a really positive vibe you know they just seem to be really content in themselves and it's not about envy. It's not about hating that person. I mean, you know, it's about could could that help you identify something that you do want that might help you get back to your, you know, to your to your your true self. And um, we've had so many messages on this, Thraya, and we're running out of time, unfortunately. But I want to I want to read this one out, saying, Helen, your words stuck really resonated with me. I've always said that one of the hardest things about infertility or trying to have a baby without success is the weight. You feel like your life is stuck. It's on hold. So I hope listeners can think about that when they hear of friends who are going through IVF or having fertility issues. And the doctor is right. Some things are just out of your control, which is the second hardest part I felt about IVF. As scientific as the whole process process seems to be, there's just so much that's up to the DNA. Um, thank you so much for sharing that. And I don't know what stage you are in with your fertility journey, but I'm truly, truly 
wishing you all the very best with that. Um, Thraya, last question, and I always love a recommendation. I've already given mine, which was Mo Gardot's, uh Solve for Happy. But if anyone wants to look into whether it's the specific survey or indeed any books on contentness, happiness, however what you want to call it, where would you point us? Um, I think I would point people to Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, because I think it's a phenomenal book that talks, it's, it's, a part, it's a book that's split into two parts. And the second part really talks about how, uh, again, our last freedom and our freedom that can never be taken away from us is how we respond to certain things in our life. And if we learn to respond to things in a way that gives us an, a sense of internal peace, well, that's essentially something that no one can take away from us. And at the same time, it's, it's something that could really help us move forward in a healthy and satisfied manner. Dr. Thraya, thank you so much. Really, really enjoyed chatting with you this afternoon. I hope we've helped Thanks, a few people out there, which is, which is my purpose, I hope. That's, my, <laughs> that's what makes me happy. Um, Dr. Thraya, as ever, a pleasure. And you can find Dr. T at the Human Relations Institute and Clinic. We are taking a trip to the farm, and it's a farm in quite an unexpected place now. May Shalabi is the sustainability manager at Expo City, and the farm, my goodness, looks absolutely incredible. Uh, May, how are you? Hi, Helen. I'm great. How are you? Yeah, really well, really well. I had a nosy round cop earlier today before coming back to the studio, and Will would love to come and see what you guys have been up to there on the farm front. How is COP28 treating you so far? Oh, it's been lovely. Um, it's busy. This morning was the first day where we had a lot of schools come in. So it's been uh, amazing just having all of this, uh, you know, all of this excitement around not just COP, but farming in specific and a lot of interest in Expo City Farm. So it's been wonderful having everyone here. Tell us a little bit about your background. What do we need to know about your passion or your training that's led you to this, this role, which sounds like a dream for anyone who's passionate about the planet? Absolutely. I am very lucky to be in this role. That's true. Um, So my journey kind of started out uh, a little bit uh, earlier, maybe 10 years ago. I was uh, doing my master's in international development and uh, I got interested in food security. um, That took me to Kenya, where I stayed on a farm for two months and learned more about sustainable agriculture and uh, food security there and uh, continued my journey since um, working on conservation and agriculture in Egypt and uh, over here in Dubai when I moved a few years ago uh, working also in the agriculture and environmental education and uh, finally here I am. Well I mean I've been in Dubai probably a little bit longer than you and I remember vividly it just being very rare to be able to buy things grew here and I'm so grateful that that narrative has changed and that we've now got more people growing on their balconies in their garden We're saying you know a huge number of UAE farms and farmers come to the forum and really being supported and my goodness we wouldn't do it if the produce wasn't good you know I'm, I'm all about the taste at the, at the end of the day um, and for you guys you're you're really showcasing a lot of the things that have been perhaps been going on the scene going on behind the scenes so can you tell us what exactly is the Expo City Farm? Absolutely. So uh, it's exactly what you're saying. We want to show that we can grow food in the UAE, food that is nutritious and fresh um, and full of flavor. And uh, so the farm has seven different components, um, all in partnership with various uh, local and international companies. Uh, we have an organic farm an outdoor organic farm in partnership with Emirates Biofarm and Emirates Biofertilizer. Emirates Biofarm also happens to be the largest organic farm in the UAE based out of Align. And it's growing a diversity of crops, um, common crops that we're familiar with, uh, like tomatoes, cucumbers, eggplants, you name it, but also some less traditional crops like quinoa and millets um, and uh, a variety of desert and native species as well. We also have um, an indoor farm uh, with Alaska and it's a hydroponics vertical system uh, where we're growing also a wide variety of uh, leafy greens as well as uh, some uh, edible flowers and tomatoes. Um, And all of that is being harvested along with mushrooms that are grown in a grow cabinet with Below Farm. All of that is being harvested together and we're able to 
eat it all through our cooking classes um, that we have throughout the day, um, three sessions throughout every day during COP28. Wow. People can come in and enjoy the harvest. Um, and we also have uh, programming. Ooh. So um, every day from 10 till 10, we have a variety of workshops and talks. We just wrapped up an amazing um, panel discussion now um, and uh, more to come throughout the day. I have to say, the produce sounds absolutely incredible. I'm, I am really interested in the tech, though. You mentioned hydroponics before, and obviously COP28 has that huge emphasis on the environment. Um, we are ultimately growing in a place that doesn't have much water. So what are some of the techniques um, that are really being used there on the farm that we need to know about? That's a great question, Helen. Thank you for that. And that's always what we're trying to highlight here as well. So we have two innovations um, that specifically, or actually three innovations that specifically target water. The first one is the indoor farm that you mentioned. And of course, indoor farming has multiple benefits. The first one is that it's hydroponics, which means we get to circulate the water. And by that, it means we use 90 to 95% less water than traditional irrigation. So that's a huge water saving for a country that has water scarcity. Um, and we have uh, two additional methods, of course, where we um, try to save water. One of them is biochar. And biochar is um, sort of like a charcoal, but it's actually very fascinating because, you know, most of the time farmers at the end of the season, um, often they burn the agriculture waste at the end of the season. And when that happens, it releases a lot of um, carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. But biochar offers a solution to that where all of that agriculture waste could be collected and it undergoes a process called pyrolysis um, where it's heated, it's not burnt, but under high heat, all of that organic um, and green waste gets charred. And this biochar ends up storing all of this carbon, but it also has an amazing property because it's so porous. And so when we add it to the soil, it actually helps the soil retain so much more water. Mm. And the biochar is uh, brought to us by a healthier earth um, and it's being showcased here. You're about to say something. Well, no, it's, I just find it really incredible to think about all of the, the work and research that goes on behind the scenes that, you know, those of us who don't work in sustainability are completely ignorant about. And I just love the idea of all of this innovation being applied and actually being this tangible results, you know, of something that you can see and touch and eat. I just think it's quite magical. Absolutely. That's all this, this alchemy, I suppose. And what's the third innovation or, or piece of tech? Yeah, the third piece of tech is actually an air-to-water technology, which is super fascinating because um, what it does essentially is that it captures the humidity from the atmosphere, which of course we have a lot of, and um, it uses a, a material called MOF, which acts sort of like a sponge, and it's a really great absorbent of this humidity. And it basically absorbs all of this humidity and through a pressure system kind of sque squeezes it out again, sort of like a sponge once again. And what we end up with is potable water that is used in our case for irrigation, but it could be used for multiple purposes, drinking and sanitation as well. Wow, um, drinking air. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty amazing. Quite, exactly, <laughs> it is. It really is. Uh, we've, and we've had a couple of questions for you, Mai, if you don't mind. One is asking about tours and, and one is asking about how long and how, well, where you are and how long you're going to be around for. So um, you mentioned before you're doing cooking classes all the way through COP, some great workshops and panels as well. But um, after the event is, is over, what is the legacy and, and how, how, I guess, can Dubai residents come along and see what's happening on the farm or maybe even get their hands dirty? I don't know. You tell us. Yes, please, please. So the good news is that we're staying. We're not going anywhere. Yay. So we launched in COP. Yes, <laughs> we launched in COP. But we, we, you know, as a, as a great platform and as a great timing to be able to talk about what we essentially want to talk about. But of course, the farm is here to stay because our ambitions are for Expo City Dubai and to be able to provide healthy, nutritious and fresh food for the residents of the city and for well, before we have residents for the tenants of the city right now. Um, so uh, it's open. People can come in and have tours. Um, we'll be open from 10 till 10 during COP and moving forward as well. Um, all the details could be found on the website with any updates. And 
after COP, we hope to continue activating the space and having workshops and cooking classes as well. Um, but absolutely, tours are free uh, from now and beyond COP. Are you in the green zone? There's been another question that's come in from Rory. We are. We are in the green zone. Yes. yes. <laughs> Appropriately so. Um, and where exactly are you? How can we find you at Expo City? So we are, if, uh, for the people that remember Expo 2020, we are just beside Edfordstan Park. Yes. Um, okay. So it's quite easy. Yeah. And for the people that haven't been to Expo 2020, that area is now called um, Extreme Hangout um, during COP28. And we are just beside Extreme Hangout. And lastly, um, when we think about, we've got some great restaurants at Expo City. I had a little nosy around this morning. I was like, oh, what should I, what should I have my lunch today? Is there a plan to perhaps be supplying to restaurants even and, and close that loop even tighter? Yeah, and actually that brings me to something else. So as of now, because we're still in a sort of in an early stage, so the produce that we have on the farm is all harvested and it goes to the cooking classes. So we have three cooking classes a day and that's all, unfortunately, the supply we're able to offer at the moment. But hopefully in the future we can grow that. But that's not to say that that's the only form of collaboration with other uh, vendors around site. So, for example, for our coffee, um, uh, uh, for our mushroom growing, sorry, we actually use coffee grounds from around uh, Expo. So we've partnered with uh, several coffee shops. We collect the coffee grounds from them and we use that as the substrate to grow our mushrooms. Yeah. And... Um, Yes, and we have a beautiful circular system where any waste as well that comes from the cooking classes, so food scraps, you know, from the bits of the food that we don't necessarily eat, all goes to a compost uh, bin. And once again, we collect that compost and use it on the farm. So we're really trying to close that loop. Um, and hopefully the more we grow, the more we'd be able to absorb and also share. Thank you so much. I think it's wonderful. I know, I know an awful lot of people are planning their trips to COP28 this week, but to have that legacy, I know a lot of people are excited about the festive season um, at Expo City as well. To go along and see the things brought to life is just, it's just really, really special, especially when we're looking at, you know, plants that are indigenous to here, things that can grow naturally here, but also how you're applying tech for great taste. Um, for anyone that wants to find out more, whether it's the schedule of events or that exact location, uh, May, what's the best way of getting in touch with you guys at the Expo City Farm? Ooh, I would say social media right now on Expo City Dubai's social media page. Um, but for more details, you can find the webpage on Expo City Farm on Expo City Dubai's website as well, where you can find all of the programming, the cooking classes, the chefs that are going to be there. Um, and uh, and join us. We'd well, love to see everyone here. I will swing by for sure um, next time I'm there. Thank you so much for your time and your expertise. As I said, it's just really wonderful to think about things that are happening here right under our nose. Um, and huge congratulations on the initiative so far. Our ocean is in serious trouble. Heating, pollution, acidification, oxygen loss, all posing serious threats to the health of the ocean, all living things in it, and actually the planet as a whole. But why should you care and what can we do about it? Amanda Rushworth is with us today. She's an environmental consultant, a TED speaker and a board director at ADSRAC, which is a UA marine conservation organisation, joining us on the line now. Um, Amanda, thank you for making time for us. I know obviously with COP28 going on, you and the team are incredibly busy and I think you're probably speaking to us from your car in between appointments. So so thank you. Um, what have your big kind of takeaways from COP28 been so far? How are you feeling about the about the programme? Hi, Helen. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, it's been a fantastic opportunity for like-minded people to really talk. Um, and one of the biggest takeaways that it doesn't surprise me, um, but is, is nice to reiterate, is that the UAE doesn't need to host COP to get all these people in a room. Um, you know, the UAE is, is very good at putting the right people in the right place for uh, making a, a better future for our you know, lovely country. And um, COP has just been able to entice more people globally, I think, and also highlight, you know, the, the sustainability practices that are already in play and then uh, bring more brands to the table. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's also making sure that even those that aren't at COP 
are engaging with COP in some way or another, whether it's hosting individual talks in different locations, pop-ups, um, or even, you know, just, uh, I just finished a talk with ASRAC for a, a local company here who wanted to really drive home the message of sustainability, mm-hmm. um, which maybe wouldn't have been as important had it not been COP at the same time. I think that raises a really interesting point, actually, that even if you're not able to get to Expo City um, to have these conversations brought to the fore, to have companies and individuals take a pause, think what can we do, what can we do more, what can we be doing better, what could we be doing less of? Um, and it's a statement, as you say, from the UAE and our intentions and our visions. So um, it's a hugely exciting place to go if you do get the, get the chance. And there's some amazing things going on for families as well. And I know you've been there today, too. Um, Amanda, where did your passion for the planet start? Are you able to pinpoint it exactly? Funny enough, I am. I grew up uh, in Jeddah. And obviously, the Red Sea is an incredibly beautiful uh, ecosystem. But it's you know, impossible to ignore the tidal changes and the plastic and the marine debris that gets brought in. So uh, from a young age, you know, I was personally uh, exposed to it and, and was constantly on the on the lookout and doing beach cleanups just with the family. So it was only a progression from there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then moving to the UAE, obviously another beautiful coastal city. Um, marine debris is everywhere. There is nowhere in the world that is now um, not... Uh, finding the effects of plastic pollution from sort of Everest to Antarctica. Mm. Um, So, yeah, it's been a fantastic way of kind of getting involved with more like-minded people, you know, to join a a community like ASRAC and to obviously activate and, you know, walk the walk Mm -hmm. instead of just talking the talk. So it's really been a, a passion project that has been the same passion project for uh, a group of about 20 people Good, <laughs> and that? continues to grow. Well, it is continuing to grow because I think we are starting to wake up um, to the importance of the world's ocean in the fight against climate change. Do you, th- do you feel like it was underestimated or ignored for, for quite some time? I feel like it never got the, the platform it needed to, but that's often the way for um, things that are the most important that we don't yet have answers for. Um, I think what needs to happen more is the education on consuming, you know, the plastic in the first place. That's obviously the the major problem that we're facing. Um, But, you know, we're talking about the ocean and and climate change in particular. And I know that was something that was uh, a a point you mentioned at the very beginning. They are inextricably linked. So with all of that, we need to understand how we can sequester the carbon that we're putting out there. And the ocean is, is one of the biggest players, one of the biggest uh, carbon sinks we've got. Um, now, this is where I'm going to stop you, because I know that with the work you do and the conversations you're having, this is very much your kind of day to day bread and butter. And, you know, the knowledge you have is probably far more evolved and advanced than the vast majority of, of people here in the UAE. Would you mind breaking down for us whether it is to do with the role it plays in climate change, the data we need to know? and perhaps the potential um, for the ocean um, kind of playing a bigger role in reversing a bit of climate change. What do we need to know, Amanda Rushworth? Okay, so the ocean hosts more than 95% of the planet's life. That's a huge amount, and it absorbs over 90% of the Earth's excess heat too. So the ocean and climate change are completely in sync. The ocean is called a blue carbon sink because it sequesters approximately 30% of our human-produced carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. And the ocean also produces more than half of the amount of oxygen that we actually need on the planet, too. So it is the the cause and also the solution. Mm -hmm. We are causing the problems, as obviously uh, there's different ways in which we're doing that. But marine debris and producing too much carbon to be sequestered. Um, But it's why protecting and restoring these blue carbon ecosystems like coral reefs, mangroves and seagrasses are going to be ultimately the most important factors in keeping climate change at bay and keeping us within a a reach of the Paris climate change agreement threshold of 1.5 degrees in change. Um, Amanda, when we're thinking about some of those numbers, and I got goosebumps when you said 95%, um, uh, and we're thinking about, you know, these huge bodies of water, we it feels kind of abstract, to be honest. So I wonder if you could explain some of the work that you're doing at ASRAC and perhaps for everyone listening today, some actionable changes, trying, adjusting, doing less to really bring it home and we can play our part in marine conservation. 
Of course. Well, at ASREC, we are very, very uh, active in terms of collecting marine debris. So we host beach cleanups uh, on a weekly basis, uh, which are you know, available to anyone that wants to sign up. But ultimately, becoming an ASREC member, you have access to more than just our beach cleanups in terms of events. Um, we are, you know, completely volunteer-based. So everything we do is because of our, our love for the, the ecosystem that we're in and uh, wanting to affect change. But one of the things not many people realise is the importance of mangroves. And planting mangroves has been something that we've pushed very hard in the last um, in the last couple of years because in the UAE mangroves are native so that it's not introducing a foreign plant to the ecosystem they're completely natural they survive in hot climates so wonderful for uh, the UAE and um, they're an essential line of defense for coastal communities so they play a, a pivotal role in uh, the actions that climate change you know has um, but 80% of the global fish catch relies on mangrove forests. Wow. And in one life cycle of a plant, 308 kilograms of carbon dioxide is removed from the atmosphere over its, its growth cycle. So they're very, very good at sequestering carbon emissions. Now, for us here in the UAE, there is uh, an average of 20 tons of carbon dioxide that we emit per person per year. 20 tons? 20 tons, but there is a solution with mangroves. If we plant 65 mangroves per person per year, we mitigate our carbon emissions. You've already planted more than 3,000, and this work is ongoing um, with the community, with education programmes. In terms of the numbers on your website, I was completely blown away. You've collected more than 70,000 cigarette butts. Um, in terms of marine debris that you've removed, 1.47 tonnes, and I'm sure it's even more since since that data went live as well. Um, and looking, as you said, on coral reefs, you know, 18 artificial coral reefs sunk. There's an awful lot of work to do, and it, it needs it needs more people behind it. Um, with your permission, would it be okay to share your website with anyone that does want to get involved, Amanda, with ASRAC? Uh, of course. We'd, we'd absolutely love to have everybody involved, whether it's uh, through social media you can reach us on ASRAC ME or ASRACME.org is the website, and um, we hope to see you at one of our beach cleanups, which I believe the next one is next weekend, this Brilliant. coming weekend. Amanda Reshwa, thank you so much for sharing your passion, that information, and and I think we all want to do more, we all want to do better, and sometimes it does take an organisation to kind of take our hand and show us the way. So, so thank you for being <laughs> that link as well. Have a wonderful, wonderful time. As I said, I know you're involved in some great panels, great conversations at COP28 and out of that um, Expo City site as well. As Amanda said, beach cleanup next week, but things going on all year round. Um, passion for the environment, not just during COP28. Speaking for the students now and talking about money matters for kids. What is or should be taught in UAE schools when it comes to financial literacy? We've got a teacher and two students joining us at this hour and we'd love to hear from you. What do you think should be woven into the curriculum? What do you wish that you had learnt about money when you were younger? Uh, we've got Remya with us today, the head of the business suite at GEMS Winchester School, Dubai. And then we're going to be speaking to your students. How are you today? Hi, Helen. Thank you for this amazing opportunity. My pleasure. Fine, thank you. Doing great. Tell us a little bit about what the business suite is. What comes under under your remit and, and how does it relate to what we're talking about today? So I'm the head of the business suite here at Winchester School, Dubai. So we teach three subjects primarily, business studies, economics and accounting, right from years 10, 11, 12 and 13. It is a GCSE curriculum school. Now, how it comes to financial literacy and financial club is from our from among our students, we have a student-led club known as the Financial Club. They've also named it FinHub. Love it. So our students, <laughs> yeah. So our students, it's a student-led initiative. So the subjects that we teach as per, as part of curriculum are largely business economics and accounting, but financial literacy is largely taken on by our finance club. And here we have our enterprising students, Aditi and Leanne, who are going to guide you further. So these guys are going above and beyond. I love Fin Club. Guys, this is brilliant. As you said, we've got Aditi and Leanne with us today. Um, Aditi, tell us a little bit about why this is an area you are, you're interested in, because it's a choice, isn't it, to decide that you want to go above and beyond what you're learning in school. Where did this interest start, do you think? 
Um, honestly, for a long time before this, I was into the um, the same sort of craze that students had around ICT and computer science. Um, but all of this started off with a business course that I was doing when I was um, taking um, GCSE business in year 10. And we had this discussion on financial ratios in class. And the way that um, me and my friends sort of discussed this topic was trying to understand how these numbers could be interpreted as an instrumental thing to understanding um, how an owner is managing a business. So it was really about how can we go above and beyond just the numbers mm -hmm. and try to understand our place in the world yeah. and how um, you know we can understand businesses. Make so that's relatable. where it started. I think that's thought that speaks was a really interesting point that, and this is no disrespect to uh, to Ms. Morali Dewan. I think we're we're not dissing teachers or curriculum, but often there can be this gap in what we're learning and actually how it applies to the real world. You know, what does that look like in real life? As you're saying there, Aditi, you know, to a business owner, these financial models, these numbers, what does that mean to you know to her business and and, and its its ultimate success or failure? Um, so you've covered a number of different topics um, through your fin club. And Leanne, I wanted to ask you the same question. You know, when you think about, you know, as a teenager, it's a bit different here in Dubai because being able to earn, a, a, you know, a, a little salary from a part time job is quite unusual. So it's it's somewhat different to other parts of the world. But when you think about the role that money plays in your life, why did this why did this want to be something that you wanted to explore further? Well, for me, I think. Money is such a vital part of our everyday lives, trading and 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 being in the finance club is, has taught us so much about the evolution of money and investing cryptocurrency. And I think that I think that understanding the evolution of money and sort of learning uh, spending habits and educating ourselves on on money and um, and and current events in the world in terms of economics, business, even accounting and trading in general, I think it's a very important part of our life. And I think that we should all be aware, regardless of our age, of um, of just transactions and money in general. Mm -hmm. And I think that for, for students of our age, just being aware, listening to podcasts, reading books can help us develop a deeper understanding of money and transactions and, and our future careers rather than just plainly sitting in a classroom and listening to what our teachers say. Yes. And I think <laughs> I think that through all of this, we can really develop a good understanding of business overall and finance as as the finance club yeah. teaches. And I think I think yes, that's essentially money it, money helps us develop I think the finance club helps us develop a deeper understanding of money and business overall. I think, and this is where it starts. You know, I didn't do business studies or economics at school and I, I wish I had, to be honest. I, I've got, I haven't got the first clue and I feel like I've been shut off to the idea of being an entrepreneur because I haven't lacked the, you know, I've completely lacked that knowledge. And I also think, and I, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn or, or being reductive making generalisations, but I think women can be quite reluctant to tune into that idea of becoming an investor, of involving you know ourselves in, in and being like, Do you know what, I'm going to let someone else handle that. And I feel like that tide is, is definitely turning. And from what you guys are speaking about now, I've got great hope for the future. We've had a message from your your proud principal, Matt, here. Uh, we've it's got Leanne and Aditi with us today from Gems Winchester. Um, Matt saying, proud principal here. Please let our students know just how proud of them we are. I attended their conference, was completely blown away by their level of understanding and the professionals and demonstrated. I personally learned a great deal from the conference and thank them for leading this from start to finish, supporting the learning of it all. Also, in awe of the talents and the support given by Miss Remya and her team. Thank you. You are all amazing. So, Aditi, you are in uh, in grade 13 and going into the wide world very soon with hopefully some money in your pocket or the ability to earn some. Um, what tips do you think that you've learned when it comes to staying on top of your money, you know, budgeting, spending that we could all benefit from learning? Um, definitely when it comes to spending, um, investing, educating, it all starts off with having that resource that you can refer to. And for a lot of um, students and young people these days, it is books, it is podcasts, watching videos of investors uh, who make profits, uh, about investors who um, invest sustainably. So there are a lot of different areas in finance that you can learn about um, through these 
incredible resources. Um, with regards to spending habit, a lot of the ways that we discuss that in the Finance Club is talking about the personal ways that we manage our finances. So whether that's staying on track to achieve a financial goal, to save some amount of money, whether that's creating a budget, for example. Um, and really a lot of it is also the discussions that we had from the, um, the takeaways from books and podcasts that we've listened to um, with regards to some of the ways that we might implement or choose to invest uh, in stocks, cryptocurrency, uh, even insurance uh, in the future when we do become adults uh, managing our own uh, finances. And it's also about trying to understand the ways in which um, finance goes outside, like breaks its stereotypes with regards to just making profits. It's also about focusing on interesting emerging fields of finance like ESG, which is environmental, social, and corporate governance, and how businesses and individuals within them can try to make a positive impact on the world. And in fact, that's the convention that uh, me and Leanne, um, along with Ms. Uh, Ramya, hosted at our school. And we we actually saw uh, more than 100 students attend. So it really shows um, an appetite. the sort of commitment. Yeah, it shows the commitment and the interest that um, students have in learning about these interesting combinations when it comes to finance. I think it's nice to hear it from a peer-to-peer basis as well, rather than someone you know who's older and that kind of academic point of view. We had a message here um, from uh, from Zidane saying, these students sound amazing. Which books do they recommend? Uh, great question. I love a recommendation. So Aditi, let's start with you. Um, which books do you feel like would be a great addition to the Kindle or the bedside table? Um, I would honestly recommend The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham. It's a 500 plus page book. Oof. I've gone through maybe a quarter of it so far this year. Um, it's a very interesting read. It's actually a book that's recommended by uh, Warren Buffett. Um, it, it's what started him in his journey to investing. And so it really covers a lot of the foundations with finance and with regards to maybe something like a podcast that is more accessible, perhaps um, um, that you could create a habit on on listening to is definitely NPR's Planet Money. Uh, it's a podcast where they sort of explore the intersections of business, economics and finance. And it's really interesting um, if you're you're willing to listen to. Me. And what about you, Leanne? What are some of your favorite thinkers or thought leaders when it comes to finances? Which book would you recommend for, a, I don't know, a Christmas list, perhaps? For me, I think it's the magic of thinking big. It's not it's not specific on finance, but it's more on business thinking of ideas, how to come up with the with unique sort of business plans and ideas, how to how to sort of stray away from the market and to come up with a unique, better idea, which could make you millions even. Oh. And I, 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 I really enjoyed the book. I've, I've gone through the whole thing, I think about twice. And it, it really changed my outlook on life and how to, the magic of thinking big. The magic of thinking, it, I've just Googled it. It's by David yes. J. Schwartz. It could be the best yes. 37 dirhams you ever spend if you're going to get millions yes. return. <laughs> yes. Guys, thank so you I so think- much for that time. Honestly, I, I, I feel like you guys need to start your own financial podcast, to be honest. And uh, Ms. Rami, it sounds like you've been doing an amazing job fostering this idea of why not me? Why shouldn't I invest? What's next? Feeling empowered by money rather than intimidated and, and equipping each other and, and you know with the tools to, to move forward. It's something I wish there was a fin club at my school and I think every school should have one. So thank you all three. Thank for, you, Helen. For, for thank bringing you for this, this amazing opportunity. My thank pleasure. You, so thank, you. thank you so much to the team there. Um, the fin club at Gems Winchester School. Do you have one at your school? Let me know. Maybe your kids could start it. I might suggest it to my eight-year-old because she's got her leap card. And does she want to spend money? No, she does not. So a topic for another day, how to stop stop my child actually spending some money. Jessica Smith joining us now, former Paralympian swimmer for Australia, inclusion advocate and children's book author. She is on a mission for a million children to read her books. The Just Jessica books are a series of three really beautifully illustrated and heartwarming stories about being proud of who you are, embracing what makes us different, and drawing on Jess's own experience of attending school, joining the band, and of course, swimming. Um, Jessica, thank you for being with us today. For anyone that hasn't heard your story, would you mind explaining a little bit about how you were born differently, as you've said in the past, and why this has been such an important mission for you in promoting inclusion? Yes, certainly. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So I was, my, I was born missing my left arm, 
And there was no explanation as to why that occurred. And so I grew up with a lot of questions, wanting to understand why I looked different from my three younger brothers and the kids at school and the kids that I saw in the park. And I think, you know, when you have those questions as a young child and your parents can't necessarily answer them for you, it can be quite overwhelming at times. And so for me, there was this idea that I never really understood why I looked different. Was it punishment? Was it just how it was supposed to be? And obviously at a young age, you can't really understand the complexities of it. Mm -hmm. But what I lacked was representation in mainstream media and in the books that I was reading. You know, when you don't see yourself represented, it sends a very loud message that perhaps there's something wrong with the way that you look. And Mm -hmm. so for me, it was trying to come to terms with that from a very young age and trying to break down perhaps the stigmas and the complexities of living with a disability and what that meant in a world where we are very much focused on appearance and on perfection. Mm -hmm. And for me, you know, I battled a lot with mental health and eating disorders because my body looked so different from what I was being told was this ideal, you know, standards for what I should be striving for. And so for me, that sparked a lot of ideas, you know, when I became a mother myself of, how can I change this course of direction for, for children so that they do feel represented and they do feel validated? And that's where the idea came to perhaps articulate my story in a fun way that children can relate to. And connect with. Um, I just want to go back to something you touched on there and then I want to hear about the, the initiative. But you're talking earlier about, you know, searching for answers and I guess finding the understanding the why or an explanation of to, you know, why you were born differently. Does that still matter to you, Jess? Are you still kind of looking for answers or an explanation? I think I've come to terms with the fact that there'll never really be an answer. And, you know, scientifically, yes, there there are a few explanations that have been given to myself and my parents over the years, but it never really answered the question of why me? Mm -hmm. What was it about me that, you know, the universe decided that I would be born missing my left arm? And I've realized now that, you know, that's not necessarily the search or the quest that I should be you know, pining after it's, Mm -hmm. yeah, it should be a focus on, okay, well, this is my reality. How can I now be of service to other people living with a disability? How can my story help them on their journey? Now what? And I think, I mean, we're we're the ones that are kind of really benefiting from, from your mission really, because books, as we've spoken about before, are such a powerful tool and, and actually such a really useful tool for parents who might be feeling reluctant or unsure about how to have conversations. And these conversations can be about anything and everything, you know, bullying we've touched on before. Um, We've just been talking about money. My kids have got a great book on, you know, the evolution of money and and being able to educate our kids and ourselves at the same time by sitting, you know, with a kid on our lap or, or next to us on the sofa. And looking at the world through someone else's eyes or with the expertise of, of, of someone who's explaining it in such a clear way. Um, and what we have seen, thank goodness, is, you know, more diversity in children's literature in, in, in many forms. Um, with the disability piece, I do think that that is something that's been handled quite clumsily in the past. And I think your books do it so beautifully, especially with the series of three where you can connect with you know, little Jessica and the, the the adventures and the situations she finds herself on. Um, you are taking it to the next level now. <laughs> you, you're yep. on a mission <laughs> to reach one million children, uh, one million books. Tell us about this initiative. So I had the idea of obviously being able to read my books to as many children as possible. So far, I've hit about 50,000, both here in the UAE, Australia and the UK. That's face-to-face book readings. Um, and so I sat down and it, it kind of happened organically. You know, I said this large number of 1 million and then I went home and did the math. And I was like, wow, that's quite a lot, a lot of book reading. Um, but it's sort of, it's symbolic for the idea of making sure that, as you said, resources that tackle these complex issues such as disability are done in a way that is lighthearted and fun so that children can not only enjoy reading but learn about these issues in that process and so for me you know I hope to exceed more than a million and obviously doing that um, as face-to-face and as many book readings as I possibly can but also realizing it is quite a large number and so I need the help of the rest of the community and parents and caregivers all around the world to to be on board with this initiative to realize that having a resource such as a storybook for young children to be a conversation starter, as you said, it can help break down a lot of those barriers and help parents to start those, you know, sometimes challenging and awkward conversations. And if we can do that in a fun way where the children are enjoying the story and also learning and it's informative, Mm -hmm. then I think it's, you know, a really wonderful way to do that. But 
a million is a big number, so I have recorded a video of myself reading so that children, no matter where they are in the world and whether or not they have a copy of the book or not, can follow along. And obviously that then is just using different mediums and different platforms to be able to reach more engagement um, around the world because I think that disability is an issue that impacts us all at some point in our life. And so if we can have access to content that is exciting mm-hmm. and that, like you said, we can connect with, you know, it's, it's a really important way to um, continue to encourage young children to talk about these issues. And I think that books are such a powerful way to do that. The, the, I always love hearing authors read their own books because, you know, you get the emphasis of what, you know, the words that they created in their mind and how they want it to be communicated. And I think that storytelling that you've got on the website is a just fantastic way of obviously seeing the book, but also seeing you, you know, to see someone that's written a book is really exciting. So for parents listening today, and as you said, educators, caregivers um, who want to introduce their children to the Just Jessica series, what is the website that we can be sharing and hopefully get, get us closer to that one million children reached? Yes, please visit justjessicabooks.com. On there, you'll, there's a wealth of information about the initiative and also a video of the book reading and also an area for you to contact me directly if you would like me to come and do a book reading at a school event or a community event. Um, you know, I know this is going to take a couple of years, but um, I hope that we can achieve it sooner rather than later. Thank you so much. If you want the website, you can send me the word books. I'd be very happy and you can even take the pledge there once you've watched it with your kids. So uh, Jessica Smith can keep an eye on those ever increasing numbers. Jessica Smith, I, I mean, I was going to say a million face to face. You're a very busy woman. Um, I know you've got <laughs> superpowers, but that could be even beyond you. So the video is there to watch. And of course, you can buy the books in UA bookshops and online as well. Jessica Smith, thank you so, so much. Always an absolute pleasure and I'll see you very soon and thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast don't forget you can subscribe you'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out and you can listen to me live on Dubai I 103.8 Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.